What's going on, Brian? It is uh, right before the Thanksgiving holiday again. It's just me and you. John is still on vacation, but we're looking forward to his, him joining again here in a couple episodes. But today we talked about innovation, everybody's favorite word. <laughs> That's right. And uh, it, we covered a lot of territory, as we often do. Uh, you know, really kind of talking about the definitions of it. We got into uh, exploring some examples of what are commonly classified as the four categories or four types of innovation. And then we got into some additional context, exploring uh, some of those key innovators uh, globally that uh, have been influential to us or have been influential uh, to the world at large. And uh, we, we had some interesting insights and tidbits along the way, as well as some examples of some great uh, books or other resources that you might want to check out if innovation is kind of your thing. Yeah, I would agree. And we, we kind of went all over the place with this, so don't, don't just think it's us talking about you know, like the newest technology or, or blockchain, even though we hit blockchain. So don't don't think it's a conversation just about that. So with that, let's let everyone get on with the show. Let's do it. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Nick Lozano in Alexandria, Virginia. <laughs> Changing it up again, I love it. Uh, hey man, I, so, I forgot to do it the last episode, so I, you know, I just got to roll with it, right? Fair enough, fair enough. There are approximate locations. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, Nick, any uh, program that uh, carries technology as one of the facets of its uh, topics at some point has to explore the theme of innovation. It's just just about the biggest buzz term that I think we tend to hear as technologists. Would you agree? I, I would totally agree, right? And um, especially, and we've talked about this before, since technology's kind of really been consumerized, uh, when, when people think of innovation now, they think of Google and what's Apple doing and what's Amazon doing. When that's, uh, you know, not always necessarily the case, you don't have to be one of those huge big players to do something innovative. It could be something as simple as maybe you do a new onboarding process where you onboard your employees and you get this whole formal process. Innovation can be something as simple as that. It doesn't have to be creating the next whiz bang, no SQL, whatever you can think of database. Uh, you know, things, opportunities for innovation are there and you just don't have to be one of the big tech players. Yeah, and I, I think of innovation sort of in the same way that I think of something like CX, right? Client experience. Some of the the best enhancements around CX, very similar to some of the best enhancements in innovation, come from making very simple but dramatic changes, right? So, for example, I think about the years that I've spent working in the commercial insurance industry. This is a very paper intensive industry, you know, one that's all about policies and contracts and lots of things that have historically always been, uh, you know, paper based. And so you print all that stuff out, you package it, you put, you know, shipping and postage on it, and you send it physically somewhere. And, you know, uh, I think a major innovation that came for that industry 
was just the idea of moving not only to electronic documents like PDFs, but actually then servicing all of that data through a portal where then everything is 100% electronic. You cut down on the, the paper waste, you cut down on all these additional expenses, all this, all this time that's spent printing and binding and mailing and the time it takes to ship things, you know, so it increased, you know, tenfold in terms of efficiency and, and savings, but it really wasn't, uh, you know, this great leap forward in terms of, you know, transforming how the business operated. It did transform a very simple touch point within that client experience that is one, you know, kind of analogous to online banking. Before it existed, no one really knew that they needed it. Once it existed, no one would ever do it the other way again, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think you're right. And the online banking is really um, one of those things we can think of recently. Uh, maybe when you think of Gen Zers to them, that's just banking, right? Um, just like a digital camera is just a camera to them. They don't, they don't remember the, you know, the film days and don't remember going to the bank because you have to deposit your check. And I remember, I remember deposit limits <laughs> on your bank, right? You, you used to be able to go to like the ATM and you could do a deposit through there, but it had a limit of like X dollars that you could deposit. But I, I agree with you. The bank of things are, are a really good example. When you think of really the late 90s when that started coming on, people were deathly terrified of banking online. It was like, oh, whoa, whoa, I'm not putting my credit card in this. And you think of today, I, you know, if I can't pay with my credit card somewhere or debit card, like I don't even want to mess with it. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that, but it's little things like that, that innovations where, where things start small and then they have this snowball effect to where it can affect uh, culture as a whole. And like we were saying earlier, you don't have to start with some big grand scheme vision to get there. Your example of the commercial insurance space is was heavily paper-based, right? Let's just switch to making it PDFs. Can we start there? Can we start small and, and work our way to, to something uh, and think about the client experience, customer experience, um, you know, whoever you service, it's a customer, a client, uh, you know, an employee or whatever. If you just think about that experience from that perspective, a lot of times you can find innovative things to do when you put yourself in the shoes of, of your client or your customer or your end user. Yeah, I think all that's absolutely true. You know, it's something we don't do very often, Nick, is solicit feedback from our listenership. But for this episode in particular, I think it would be interesting if folks would drop uh, into the comments uh, wherever they're uh, sourcing this podcast, some of the things that they believe uh, might actually contribute as innovations to their own particular lines of business. Yeah, that's a great example. I feel like that'd be good to have for a live stream. Right, because then we could see the comments and real time. So maybe maybe we'll plan that for a live stream too, uh, after after the new year. You know, when most of uh, so like most of our listener base is in the United States and recording this close to Thanksgiving, and uh, you know the holidays in December, and a lot of the business world in the U.S. kind of shuts down <laughs> around the, around those times. I don't know how it is for for you, Brian, but but around here in D.C., you know, the, the city gets quiet. Uh, and things just seem to kind of slow down as people are spending time with with their families. But as you are saying, I, I completely agree that 
you know, soliciting feedback is one of those great ways to get ideas for innovation and especially feedback from frontline workers, right? People who are, have boots on the ground, uh, who are interacting with your clients or your customers uh, full time. I think a lot of times when organizations are looking for innovations, a lot of times they, they reach out to management and middle management and it never makes its way all the way down to the bottom. That's true. And I think very uh, commonly, you know, the inverse is also true. You see some of the greatest innovations come from those frontline workers. That tends to be, you know, where the ideas start cooking, you know, in terms of if only this could happen this other way, everything would be so much better. And, uh, and so, you know, I mean, from a basic definition of innovation, uh, you know, I think that that's a, a good way to, to qualify it, right? It's a, it's a new method or a new product. It's something that results in improving whatever, uh, you know, currently exists or introducing something that didn't exist before uh, where there's a need, but the need isn't necessarily recognized. Do you agree with that uh, as a definition? Are there other things that you would add into that? No, I agree, and I think you you hit all the points that I would say too. It doesn't have to be something new, right? We just talked about earlier. Like you don't have to reinvent something to have something innovative. Uh, it could be as simple as a frontline worker saying, "Hey, you give these people too much paper, they throw it all in the garbage can. Why are we printing paper?" <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, right there. That could be an innovative thing and save the company millions of dollars if your organization is based on just printing paper and giving it to people and them throwing it in the garbage. <laughs> yeah. Save, saving time, saving energy, saving, uh, saving money, right. Reducing expenses, reducing waste. Any of those things I think can, can help contribute to, uh, what gets qualified as an innovative idea, you know, so that yeah, led me to, Oh, go ahead. Nick. No, I, and I, I just wanted to bring up a point because when we're talking about innovation, it reminds me of, uh, remember when we had Peter, Peter Margaritas on, I think the first time, and he was talking about fostering ideas from people uh, and getting them together in a room. And he's like, hey, you know, I, you know, we don't want any safe ideas here. You know, sh throw out the craziest idea you have. Uh, we're, we're not going to worry about how it gets done or how it's accomplished, but it, it's just that going through that thought process of uh, throwing an idea out there to see if you can find something to work with. And I think you made the comment when he said that too, about Seth Godin. Remember, I think you said, the, what, what is it like? Uh, safe is risky. Safe risky, is risky, is safe. risky is safe. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> and when you were saying all that, it just reminded me of when we had that conversation with them and he's like, Hey, you know, I just want, you know, the craziest ideas you can give me out here so that we can start, you know, fostering this creativity process. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up it, because it is a process. You know, the uh, I think, you know, ideas uh, only exist in community, right? So once you start the process of ideation and you solicit feedback and you start through sharing, then that collaboration can continue to refine it until, you know, really you reach something where, all the considerations have been, you know, kind of turned over in the process of, of looking at what that change could bring. 
you know, it, as we've been talking about this, it, it occurred to me that uh, in, in my own years of actually having innovation, director of innovation in my title, uh, there was uh, uh, a framework, you know, that uh, we would use um, that included the four types of innovation. We would, we would kind of use it as a filter by which we would run through some of these ideas and we kind of covered it through some of our you know definitions already but uh the four types of innovation in this particular uh framework that i, I used to use from a company called ignition uh there's sustaining disruptive new market and integrative and so sustaining you know being one of those keeping the lights on while keeping the customers happy uh you know initiatives and so i think that kind of correlates to what we were talking about with you know, moving from purely paper-based to electronic and then, you know, electronic delivery. It's, it's still just part of how the business needs to operate. You kind of can't get out from under it, but at least you can improve what the client experience is on the, on the other end of it, uh, you know, by actually simplifying everything and not giving someone a binder full of paper that is just going to gather dust on their shelf, <laughs> you know? So then the second one is disruptive, low cost alternative enabled by new technology. So what, what are some examples that come to mind for you of, of something that you would qualify as disruptive? Disruptive. So we, we always have our classic examples of something that was disruptive that came along and I'll always give the, the, the Kodak one, right? It's looking at seeing a threat coming right so if people aren't familiar kodak was like the film company for like most things movies cameras um you know anything if if you had to print an image or a photo it was on kodak film most of the time and as digital started coming up they weren't paying attention to it uh thinking it was just a niche market uh that it wasn't going to go anywhere and by the time they realized that they were in trouble, it was already too late. <laughs> they, they had already lost tons of market share. They went far too, too far down the road uh, and, and they couldn't recover. And another good example is what? Blackberry too, right? As us as tech people, a lot of us had Blackberries before the iPhone came along. It was the coolest thing in the world, right? When you had that full keyboard and the little scroll wheel. Um, and even before that, they had the pager. And it's, it's one of those things, right? They were a top market player. And then here comes Apple and they're like, okay, well, you know, we don't have to worry about it too much. We have this big business segment market um, who buy our servers and, you know, we're all about security. And then eventually they found out that as technology was being consumerized, uh, that those people didn't want Blackberries. They wanted to use their iPhones because it was easier to use than, than, you know, the Blackberry and trying to navigate with the touch ball. So I, I would say those are two really classic examples of me where things started out small it looked like a very uh, niche thing, and then it eventually exploded and become became super consumerized, and people got left in the dust. <laughs> you know, that's interesting because I also would put the mobile phone. I, I would personally classify that in the, the last category around integrative, and so um, so integrative is you know multiple jobs to be done in one elegant solution. So I think to your point that the BlackBerry was the first to market to do that. And I think was really forward thinking in the sense that the realization was we need to bring together a number of these things that are commonly used by the average business person, 
right? We, we need mobile access to email. That's the most critical one. And, and we've talked about this before, but it's often, you know, recognized as the number one most critical business application for any business, right? Email. Um, it's, it's a conduit that has to be open at all times, right? Um, but number two, then it, it gave you a couple of these other things. Uh, you know, it gave you uh, a, a simplistic browser. It gave you uh, a way to do simplistic file storage, right? Uh, there was uh, there was a, a maps feature in it, right? You know, all of these things that were sort of the basis of what became, uh, you know, just what mobile phones are in general. I think the real disruptive thing that Apple did was it came along and it provided that in an even more elegant uh, type of approach by adding the touchscreen, but more importantly, by also adding the app exchange so that, you know, now uh, you've got this ability to invite other developers and other creators into your ecosystem that could develop their own utilities. And so then all of a sudden you see this explosion of things like, you know, well, I don't just need a phone. I, I need to be able to play this, uh, you know, Angry Birds video game on it, right? Because that's what you do when you swipe on these things. <laughs> that or what was the other one that was popular? Fruit Ninja? That, that was a popular game too, I remember. That's right, Fruit Ninja. But I agree, that's crush. one of those cases where, you know, Apple's really good at this and you know, I'm always a fan of them from a technology perspective. I'm not a super fan. I don't like every product they release. But one thing that they are really good at is they tend to not be first in any category that they do. Right. When you think about the iPod, that was not the first MP3 player. What was the first one? It was like a Rovio or something like that. Um, they have a really good mentality of looking at a product and saying, okay, this could, this has the potential to be huge, but it is super complicated to figure out. So let's refine this process, it, make it as simple as we can, and then release it. And that has worked really well for them over the years. What are what are they like a market cap of like two trillion dollars? Uh, Something like that. They were the that, first yeah. trillion dollar company. Now they're two, and they've really made the living off that iPod that then turned into the iPhone and taking those products and. Uh, making it simpler because I think even when Steve Jobs came back, he chopped the number of products that they were uh, producing, right? He's like, hey, if we can't be number one or number two in any category, I don't want to make it. Uh, I could be misremembering this, but I think when I read his book, the Walter Isaacs, Isaacson one, he, he had, there was like some quote about that, right? When he came in, uh, maybe a listener can correct me if I'm wrong and I'm thinking of someone else, but that's a great mentality, right? Let's make this as simple as we can and focus on the things we can control and focus at the one or two things that we can make better. And I don't know how I got there, but here we are. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, you know, it's funny that you bring up uh, the, the iPod because for this last category in the four types of innovation, new market, uh, right, the definition being modifying existing solutions for new markets. Um, that took me directly to my years in the music industry. And so as an internet radio entrepreneur, I, I was, you know, on the front end of that wave of everything that happened with digital distribution in the music industry. And, uh, and it started off, you know, pretty simply enough with uh, the, the real player 
and real producer. And those were, that, that was it. Oh, that man. was how you listened to, <laughs> to audio on the web, you know. And you had to days. install the real player or else like none of the codecs worked or anything. I remember that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So, uh, and you know, it was, uh, it was pretty, you know, low resolution at that time. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, 16 bit, uh, and then it, you know, continued to improve and everything. But, um, you know, what really became sort of the new market transformation, I think, you know, because internet radio was sort of a, it was a slow crawl, you know, forward. And so it didn't, it didn't scare the music industry. In fact, I remember sitting in LA, uh, at the Record Industry Association of America, uh, their annual conference, and they they trotted out this annual report as they always did. And in that report, um, they, for the first time in 1998, acknowledged that uh, you know there was going to be digital distribution of music. But here's why they were here to like put the music industry to rest because. There's no reason to worry about it. We're going to figure it all out before it has a chance to happen. <clears throat> and it can't happen for several reasons. Number one, broadband wasn't ubiquitous. Number two, file sizes for quality music. They're just far too large. And so you put those two things together, people can't get access to quality music. Well, within three months of that report, the MP3 codec was cracked and publicly released. <laughs> Napster emerged and all of a sudden... Uh, you know, you had all of these different streaming capabilities that were utilizing MP3 versus, you know, real audio or Windows Media that came after it. And that ended up being completely disruptive, uh, you know, from a new market perspective to the established music industry, because now you, you have like all these players that are facilitating something uh, in, in a much better way. Um, as an existing solution. And, and not only that, I think it tapped into uh, that new market basis where you started seeing purchasing habits that were directed in a very different way. You know, the, uh, the 45 single had always been kind of the, the low price point to get into acquiring music, but that kind of, you know, moved away at the advent of the CD. And so it became very difficult for people to just spend a little bit of money if that's all they had to be able to acquire a song. But once the MP3 codec was released, suddenly it was very easy to acquire a single song or only a couple songs from an album uh, in a very individualized kind of way. And that's really where Steve Jobs, I think, came and capitalized on it because iTunes didn't deliver anything that didn't already exist uh, at that time. He just was able to leverage consumerizing it in a very elegant way by attaching it to a specific product with the iPod and then creating the iTunes store to have, you know, that fully licensed ecosystem where Napster was sort of the, the wild West's, you know, illegal equivalent <laughs> of all of that. <laughs> I actually like that you bring that example up and that uh, Napster is a direct reflection of an industry not listening to its consumers, right? The only reason that piracy happened, well, granted, some people wanted free music, right? I mean, the, those people wouldn't have bought it even if the the um, media companies created Napster, right? If they created that and set it up, those aren't the people who would buy anyways. But it was a reflection of the ease of access to get that media was super difficult. 
Yeah, like what did you have to do to get a CD before? You had to go to, you know, a Sam Goody, FYE, like what like name one of the dozen record stores that doesn't exist anymore. Where you would go wait in line and hope that you could get one of the the number of copies that they had that were coming to that store. And it's just, you know, people leveraging the internet, deciding that, hey, this is not a solution that's working for anybody. Let's decentralize that and make it so that it gives access to everybody. And a great example of that now is blockchain, right? I'm not huge on the cryptocurrency part of it, but the idea of decentralizing stuff and making access where you don't have to go to one central location to get something, to me, is where, where the um, great thing that comes out of out of the cryptocurrency, not necessarily the currency itself, but the decentralization and multiple nodes that are spread out across the globe where if one node goes down, you can still access something. Or you, if you're in Australia, which uh, everyone knows if, if you've been to Australia, they have notoriously slow internet if you're trying to access anything that is not in Australia. But when you think about it, you got to go across oceans to get anywhere. Um, so you're either going satellite or or an you know, ocean cable that's buried underground. So it, it's just one of those things where we see technologies coming and it's literally just people trying to create solutions to solve their problems. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up cryptocurrency. Uh, there's a book that I read recently called New Money for a New World, and it's actually about complementary currencies. And so at the same time that we've got this rise of crypto, and again, I think, you know, from my perspective, jury's kind of out in terms of, you know, what is really needed from that solution. Although, uh, I think if we had our, our guest, David Campbell from Electric Coin back on the show, he would probably school us on all the probably. reasons why you believe it is. Disclaimer, disclaimer, we're not experts in, in that segment. So that's right. Just that's all right. my opinions. Yep. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I agree that uh, the blockchain, it's something that I think is, is critical from a, uh, you know, really from a risk management perspective, if nothing else, in terms of, you know, managing fraud and doing it in a very simplified kind of way so that you have it, uh, you have these things like contracts that are distributed, distributed so that, <clears throat> you know, you've effectively got an unmalleable, uh, you know, pristine copy of the original intent. You know, I think those things uh, are going to continue to have a lot of influence in the the domain where contract language is, uh, you know, particularly needed. But on the on the you know topic of complementary currency, part of what I think is interesting is, you know, you made the the comment about uh, a lot of these innovations come from individuals trying to solve their needs, <clears throat> and complementary currency is one of those areas where. Uh, so in Argentina, for example, it's one of the sort of case studies in this book where there are uh, complementary currencies that can be provided to people who will do a public service. And so, for example, uh, for children who want to be able to get together enough uh, funding to be able to help buy some groceries for their families, they can pick up trash in in the neighborhood communities along the sides of the roads and for you know however many pounds of trash or bags of trash whatever it is that they bring in then they get a credit through this complementary currency 
that complementary currency can be exchanged just as any ordinary currency could for other goods and services because there has been a, a decision for the community to participate in this type of network, which is what makes that whole thing possible. It's like there's a there's an agreement now that there's going to be this transition in to what the value of uh, money, right? How that's, uh, how that's assessed. And so what's happening is for some of these communities that are suffering with a lot of poverty and where there aren't opportunities for more employment, but there's still needs for things like public services, suddenly what you're seeing is this emergence of behavior change within a society that's actually also contributing to uplifting a status of poverty, you know, for those who are most in need. So uh, that to me, I think is a, is a pretty, you know, revolutionary uh, type of innovation and, and one that would have wide reaching impact across the globe when you consider that roughly about 7 billion people on the planet are suffering in poverty, which is a lot. That's that's a huge majority. It's all all great points. And the thing I always find funny with cryptocurrency, and maybe somebody can explain this to me, is that they're like, it's decentralized money, right? But every time I see its value, it's always pegged to the US dollar. So, so I'm like, wait, wait, so is this really decentralized? Because if, if I need to take crypt cryptocurrency somewhere, it gets a value based on the US dollar. So to me, is it any different than like a commodity? Uh, I, I don't know. I digress, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so let's talk a little bit about, you know, who are some of the world's greatest innovators? You know, there, there are some that I think immediately jump to mind because they're constantly in the media, especially lately. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, if I had to take uh, one innovator... Um, and I'm going to pick somebody not technology, right? I would have to go with um, Ed Catmull from Pixar. And I've talked about him before, but it's just when, when you think about the stuff that they achieved at Pixar as a studio, um, yeah, they they did the computers the first to do like a full animated movie, um, computer generated. But what they really did really well was package products with storytelling and, and movies that were just bang on because before that, uh, Disney used to release, right? So, so backstory, Toy Story, right? They released that big hit in theaters. The original contract they had with Disney was that then Disney would get the rights to sequel movies and they would release them home on, on home video, right? That was a big thing with Disney. If you had, um, kids or something, you, you recognize this, you'll see, pull up your Disney Plus and you'll see movies that you didn't even know that they made. <laughs> and that's because it went home to movie, but they had creative control over kind of the product that Disney was going to make because this was before Disney owned them. And as they were looking at the story for that they were creating for Toy Story 2, they decided that they didn't like basically the way the story went. So they took a risk and took back control, put a lot of money into making a second movie, which normally for Disney was huge flops. And they put out Toy Story 2, and it was a huge success. And basically, they followed their same innovative formula they had for storytelling, coming in, figuring out how characters behave, and going through their storyboarding and, and basically their peer reviews uh, of movies. 
to create something innovative. And look at them now. Like, how many Toy Story movies are there? There's like four. Um, how many other sequel movies do they have that are based on their other movies? And you can see that kind of living on in the Disney Animation Studios because some of the Pixar people are in charge at the Disney Animation Studios, too. So you can see that with newer kids' movies, too, like Frozen. There's a second Frozen. It was just as big as the first one, if not bigger. So so I would have to add him in that lump as innovative people. And it's probably a different one for, for people who listen to this episode or show. Yeah, well, there's, you know, you and I have talked about just the proliferation of good news that's out there and how easy it is to be optimistic if that's the choice that you orient, you know, your your perception towards. And so to me, it's fascinating just, you know, one after another. There are innovations all over the world right now, and <clears throat> the rate of innovation continues to accelerate. Uh, you know, Terrence McKenna uh, talked about this when he developed the mathematical algorithm for what he called time wave zero, where he was able to mathematically calculate the algorithm of the doubling of human knowledge, right, over over time from the stone age all the way up through the information age until he was able to calculate, you know, his, his presumption of what the rate would be where uh, the rate of innovation doubled uh, every second. Right. And that's what he called time wave zero. Um, that, that uh, correlates also to what Ray Kurzweil has talked about as the singularity, right? That point at which, humans and machines will become so interdependent um, that they'll start to become indistinguishable from one another. So, you know, as you look around and you see all of these different areas of innovation, there's innovation, you know, in every country in the world. And there's, I think, a lot of information to pay attention to, you know, in this domain if, uh, if you choose to. So there's, you know, there's, of course, the, the big top names that we we constantly hear steve jobs still has this lasting influence of course um but you know even bill gates is having a lot of innovative strides forward with the work that he's been doing with the bill and melinda gates foundation um you know certainly transforming you know health and now his focus on environment you know those uh those will continue to yield tremendous uh, innovations and then uh of course someone like elon musk you know he's innovated in so many different domains already. Uh, it's exciting just to see kind of what the next step is um, and is spawning additional, you know, emulators. So I think of uh, like Rivian being a competitor now to uh, what Tesla has developed and, and really building on sort of that base principle of the electric car and extending, you know, those capabilities to now be long range and be able to tow heavy loads and that type and that sort of thing. Um, but then, you know, there's also, uh, areas that are often overlooked. So I had to, I had to, uh, Google this woman's name real quick because I couldn't remember what it is, but I had read something, uh, in fortune magazine, not, not too long ago about Sheila Lirio Marcelo, and she is the founder of care.com. And, you know, her story is a pretty interesting one too, because she was born and raised in the Philippines. But then she was able to get her uh, MBA and doctorate at Harvard. And part of what she saw was that there was this opportunity through a combination of both social media 
and technology to be able to easily reach uh, people all over the world who needed more help. And particularly, you know, starting with help around elder care. Uh, and so part of the concept being that, you know, leveraging the same kinds of mobile capabilities that something like Facebook have been able to, uh, you know, do for uh, just social interaction. Here she was able to leverage that same kind of thing where in a lot of countries, people don't have computers and they don't necessarily have broadband, but they do have mobile phones and they've got smartphones that give them some kind of browser-based access uh, or app-based access. So, um, so care.com ended up being something that she was able to create to help uh, drive uh, caregivers to those in need and be able to help create a more competitive marketplace for it so that now you had people who were you know perhaps already uh certified um you know nurse aides who you know weren't getting paid as much uh working in an actual facility as they could be if they were working directly for an individual and and actually thereby it helps you know both people <laughs> the the nurse aide gets a better rate of pay and the person in need gets a better uh, quality of health care and it helps create kind of a competitive market space for it as well um, but you know now it's continued to expand I mean it's been around for about 15 years now um, and it, it, it has really expanded into a lot of these other domains where you know you can find uh, everything from you know, people who are clean your home to, you know, a handyman to <laughs> any, any of those areas where you might need to pair up, um, you know, some kind of uh, individualized employment for whatever your personal need is. So uh, I thought it was worth pointing out, you know, one of the women helping to lead uh, innovation uh, globally. That, that's a, that's a good ad. Um, it, it, and I'll add another one who's, who's tech based that I just saw him recently on TikTok. So are you familiar with Justin Khan? Uh, I think that's how you say his last name. The okay. guy who's, who was mm -hmm. one of the founders of Twitch. Um, he, you know, he, he cashed out with the Amazon deal, but he had posted something the other day and he's like, you know, when we're starting Justin TV, Justin.tv, which for those who don't know, uh, the story of Twitch, Justin.tv was how it started. And then it was initially him live streaming just his life. Like uh, it was like him walking around. He had this backpack thing. And then it turned into, uh, you know, people putting things on Twitch. Justin.tv and kind of it morphing into Twitch. And one of the things he was talking about in one of his videos was they got to a point where they were running all on VC money and they were just losing money. So they were going through their burn rate. And they're like, okay, we need to start joining, you know, making revenue here. What do we, what can we do? So he gathered everybody in a room. He's like, okay, I want to put everything on the list, anything and everything that we can do to make money, we're going to put it down here. So they all sat down in a room. He's like, okay, we can run ads. Okay. Can we run a lot of ads? <laughs> it's like, so they were literally just throwing things on a wall and testing it to see what they could do to get the business profitable. And he goes on to explain that in about six months time, they went from being at a really high burn rate to actually generating revenue and then getting to the point where it was Twitch and they figured out a formula to serve the people they saw who were streaming on there, which is mostly gamers and iterate and 
tailor the product towards them. So I thought that was just a great example. And I didn't know that story uh, totally of how it went from Justin.tv to Twitch, but I thought it was a really interesting study. And he's pretty active on social media. Uh, if, if I see him on LinkedIn now, but he's pretty active on Twitch and Instagram. So you should check him out if, if you get a chance. He's also a big, um, you know, uh, mental health guy. So he talks a lot about meditation and wellness. So he's, he's right up your alley, Brian. Love it. Yeah. I'll have to explore him a little bit more. Well, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you throwing his name into the ring as well. I'll, I'll kind of finish with, with one last, uh, of my own and, you know, she's a name that is already, you know, very well known because of her association with Facebook primarily, but Cheryl Sandberg, um, you know, part of, uh, part of why I thought, you know, she was worth bringing up. I mean, not only has she had her tenure, uh, both at Google and Facebook, um, but you know, she took her wealth and influence and created the organization leanin.org that is, you know, really predicated on helping, uh, establish, you know, sort of this new front line for executive female leadership. Uh, globally, which, you know, uh, again, I, I've heard, you know, sort of counter arguments from, from folks who typically end up being in the male category, <laughs> who, uh, who have some resistance to the idea of, you know, well, why do we need more female leaders? Um, but, uh, you know, again, I think from the perspective of, you know, having a plurality of views, uh, in any, in solving any issues, right? I mean, that's where, uh, the greatest improvements come from. And certainly as we continue to work together with greater equality, uh, I think that those end up creating values, you know, not only to good companies, but to good societies. And so, uh, so I really respect, uh, the work that, that she's doing in that domain. Uh, certainly Melinda Gates has also, you know, had some very, uh, similar work, uh, that she's been doing as well. Um, but you know, as, as we start to see, um, you know, leadership in particular, um, really be something that is more common across both gender and racial, you know, prior barriers. Um, I, I think it's the kind of thing where, you know, uh, we'll see more and more innovations that continue to emerge um, because we are looking at things with a variety of perspectives versus just being in our own, you know, echo chambers of, of how these things have been done in the past. That's great. Great ad. I feel like the DEI diversity, equity and inclusion is a big topic right now. And I feel like it's just getting ready to explode. We're just on, on the beginning. Uh, cusp of of this, and, you know, we definitely need to bring somebody in to talk about this um, from a leadership perspective because I'm not an expert. <laughs> but I, I remember reading this great quote from Brene Brown. It was like, you know, belonging. Uh, what well, is like something is allowing to someone to come as who they are instead of letting them come in and fit into your culture. That hiring for a culture fit always creates an echo chamber. Um, and I'm sure I butchered that quote, but, but it's something along, <laughs> along that line. So I think that's a great topic and, and something that a lot of organizations are starting to realize that, you know, all these years of hiring for, for culture fitness, they're leaving people out because they're just basically hiring people that are similar 
to them. So you, you are seeing organizations uh, hire people who are chief people officers. They're not just human resource uh, individuals anymore um, because they have more responsibilities. And we're even seeing things like organizations dropping requirements for college degrees, uh, especially in the tech sector, because you, you don't need a college degree to figure out how to, to work AWS. I mean, there's tons of courses online to get a certificate and never touch college and make $150,000 a year uh, easily. So we're on the cusp of all that that stuff just just starting to happen, I feel like. Yeah, I think so, too. And, you know, there's um, there's a very uh, uh, interesting analysis that was done uh, in the early 1960s about uh, the movement of money and uh, and west is the direction that money moves, just in case you were wondering. And and so this <laughs> this particular book by Carl Oglesby uh, called The Yankee and Cowboy War is the one in which he really sort of spells out this uh, this westward trend of the movement of money. And so, of course, you know, here we are. We just came out of an episode with Lance Mortlock uh, very recently. And he talks about from, you know, a, a, a consultative uh, perspective, you know, what are one of those areas that are top, you know, disruptive concerns. And it's the emergence of China as the next global economic superpower, uh, which, you know, if if timing goes the way that it's projected, will arrive in 2028. So, uh, you know, the, the westward trend of the transference of of money does also not necessarily equate to the transference of innovation, but you can bet where there's money, there will be more innovation. So it'll be interesting to see what emerges from China in the next decade or so. Um, China has not had a reputation as being an innovator. They've had a reputation of uh, ripping off ideas that are already uh, existing in the marketplace and, you know, borrowing from other existing intellectual property and then building their own variations of it. So um, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if that trend continues as their uh, economic strength rises or if, uh, in fact, they do take uh, a world position in terms of being innovators. I mean, you, you make very great points. And when we talked to Lance, I thought about that a lot too. And I think a lot of it comes down to them respecting, you know, intellectual property. And you brought up the, the great points, right? They, you know, a lot of, or like, you, you always see stuff in China, right? I remember seeing this thing at Top Gear, Jeremy Clarkson goes to China and he's like, here I am in Beijing. And he's like, I've got my fake polo shirt on my fake Louis Vuitton bag. I got my fake Tommy Hilfiger jeans. It's just like fake everything. But, but I agree as, as they come more prominent on the world stage, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they, they play to that because, you know, at least in more of the Western cultures, intellectual property is uh, more, more recognized and um, respected, not always. I mean, we see, I mean, we even see instances of organizations here, you know, straight stealing stuff from other people. And sometimes in the tech space, a lot of that happens with open source projects. Uh, somebody will borrow something and not read what license it actually has, don't give anybody credit. So I'm not saying that it doesn't happen in the Western yeah. world because, you know, obviously Just read it does. the Pirates it, of Silicon Valley. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, it does happen here. It just doesn't happen 
as often, and we've got a legal system to go through, uh, you know, to take these things. So it should be interesting, like you said, to see how all this plays out over the next 10 years or so. Maybe in 10 years, we're still right in the same place we are now. Who knows? I mean, nobody has a crystal ball, right? That would be unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> you know, we uh, we often uh, ask our guests about books uh, related to innovation. So I've got one in mind, and I'm, I'm curious if you do as well, Nick. Yeah, I would say the um, – so for innovation, for me, the first one that it comes uh, to mind is Only the Paranoid Survive by Andy uh, – I'm blanking on his Grove. last name. Yeah, Andy Grove, Andy the, Grove. the longtime yeah. CEO of Intel co-founder. And they're one of the original uh, big silicon tech companies. But if you think about Intel's trajectory, they were top of market from inception all the way to maybe like five years ago when AMD started, you know, plugging at them. But if you think that's a long run in tech, a really, really long run in tech to keep that innovation and that iterative track uh, process. So that that's just a good read in general about his thought process and mentality and how he started Intel and how they kept fostering a culture of, you know, keeping that trajectory of um, Moore's law, basically. Yeah, that is that is one of my top favorite uh, leadership and management books of all time. It's, uh, it's a phenomenal read, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, you know, for me, there's uh, you mentioned Walter Isaacson with his biography of Steve Jobs. Um, he followed that book with another book called The Innovators, and um, that is a fascinating read. In fact, it's it's one of the few books that I've read twice. <laughs> you know, I loved it so much I went back through it after I finished it and read it a second time. But it is, uh, you know, sort of chapter by chapter, it goes through uh, all of these variety of um, people who have been innovators, uh, you know, in their respective domains. And he, uh, you know, he focuses it largely around, uh, what is the basis of computer technology, but he, he begins it, you know, all the way back in the era of, uh, Ada Lovelace, right. The, the, the daughter of Lord Byron, who is often credited as being the first programmer. Um, and you know, goes through, you know, decade by decade and sort of era by era, um, covering a lot of ground with, uh, with all of these innovators, uh, in the tech space. So it's a, it's a great read. It's hugely entertaining. If, uh, if you read his Steve jobs biography and you enjoyed that or any of his other works, um, this one is, is one of the best that I've ever read by him. I'll have to add it to my list. I, I did enjoy the Steve jobs biography. Um, and I, I came out of that realizing, at least for me, Steve Jobs was a great innovator, uh, great technologist, great marketer, great product guy. But he seemed like a terrible family man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that's that's important for me um, as as a parent when I when I read the stories of him and his interactions with his his children. I'm just like, man, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I want to be that innovative, that popular and feel like I feel so much on the other front. But that, that's just my two cents on that book. I don't know if you felt any different. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I, and I think he, you know, admitted that openly. And that's part of the reason that he chose to have Isaacson, uh, you know, really depict him as uh, accurately as possible, warts and all, uh, which I think is commendable. He, you know, he recognized that 
he wasn't a great person with relationships and particularly when those relationships came to the relationships with his own children and not to justify it but when you consider that he himself probably only ever met his father unknowingly when his father was the maitre d in one of the restaurants that he frequented uh you know because as an adopted child he never he never had any sense of who his parents were so um so that's that's got to do a number you know on on your emotions and your mindset as well so um i oh, think can't uh, even imagine can't even imagine you see a lot of that sort of characteristic of abandonment carry over into, you know, how he interacted with, you know, his daughter, Lisa, but, you know, with his children uh, at large. So I guess that's the, uh, you know, the, the caveat that we append to <laughs> our tale of innovation today. <laughs> yeah, we Go out and innovate. Place, Just but... be a good person while you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess with that, we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we, we appreciate everyone, whether you're one listener, thousands of listeners, or if you listen to one episode or every episode, we always greatly appreciate that. If you could go ahead and leave us a review in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, where, wherever you're getting your podcast, uh, let us know how we're doing. Give us five stars. Uh, leave us a review. I'd actually like to go through reviews sometimes and read them at the end of this <laughs> like if somebody leaves a funny review i totally i totally want to read it uh on air but if you could just go ahead and do that for us we we greatly appreciate that if you found this episode value or any episode value if you could share it with a friend or a coworker, or a colleague uh you know it'll just help us grow the show and help us you know reach new listeners and as always if you have any uh uh, information you want to talk to us you can find me on linkedin i'm nick lozano uh, brian's brian comerford and i am also on instagram at ronan janitor and on tiktok at ronan janitor so if you see me cruising around there uh, be sure to follow or connect and let's let's take this conversation offline and i'd like to meet some of our listeners offline it's always always fun running into people that way well said thanks nick all right thanks everyone